Shalom. We are so glad you're joining us on this episode of Our Hope. We created this podcast as a resource for followers of Yeshua, where they can learn more about Israel, the Bible, and the Jewish community. Together, we discuss Messianic apologetics, dive into Scripture, and hear stories from Jewish believers in Jesus. If you've enjoyed our podcast series, please consider supporting us at ourhopepodcast.com slash support. You could also help us by sharing this podcast on social media, talking about it with your friends and family, or by writing a review on Apple Podcasts. We are so grateful for you, and we hope this episode of Our Hope is both enlightening and encouraging. From the horrors of the Spanish Inquisition to the indifference of many European churches during the Holocaust, Jewish people have historically experienced the pain of anti-Semitism from the church. This difficult history between the church and the Jewish community has caused many Jewish people to be hostile toward the gospel. Some will not even read the New Testament because they are afraid it is a guidebook on how to persecute the Jewish community. At Chosen People Ministries, we educate the church about this history of anti-Semitism and help equip believers to be the Messiah's hand extended to his kinsmen. Thankfully, we know many pastors who are passionate about our cause, and on this episode, we get to interview one of them. Reverend Kenneth Larder is a Presbyterian pastor who loves Israel and the Jewish community. Today, he will be interviewed by our president, Mitch Glazer, and our New York Regional Director, Robert Walter. So it was in January of 2021 when I had the privilege to go down to Deerfield Presbyterian Church in South Jersey and uh, visit my my good friend, uh, Pastor Ken Larder, and uh, the church body down there. And I had the privilege on this particular visit, even though I'd been there before, uh, and it's a beautiful, historic church. I mean, it is just gorgeous. And while I was there, I, I, again, I had the privilege and the opportunity to see the, the product, uh, the, the fruit of Dr. Larder's heart and his love for the Jewish people, because it was a few months prior that the Lord made it possible for him and the church to erect this beautiful monument in this historic church graveyard, this monument was set up for the victims, the six million Jewish victims of the Holocaust. And I tell you, it stood out, it was beautiful, and emblazoned on the memorial was, um, was the passage from the Psalms, I shall not die but live, from Psalm 118. Uh, and it's still, it stands there like a, like a beacon uh, as a testimony to the broader Jewish community. Uh, and again, just evidence of, uh, of my brother's great love for Israel and for the Jewish people. And um, uh, so I'm very happy to introduce our guest here on the Our Hope podcast, uh, Dr. Kenneth Larder, and, uh, and also joining us is Dr. Mitch Glazer. Well, thank you, Bobby. Great to be here. Pastor Ken, great to be with you. Thank you for coming. Yeah, so we're going to uh, sort of have a free flow discussion on uh, on some of what you really are passionate about, what you really believe about uh, God's love and plan for Jewish people. And uh, in this day and age where we do see the increase of anti-Semitism, in fact, uh, the Anti-Defamation League has said that uh, even this past year, is has had the greatest number of anti-Semitic incidents in the United States than any year in the past, at least since they've been counting it, which is decades upon decades. And so it's absolutely hard for me to believe as a Jewish person that anti-Semitism is on the increase. And of course, we've seen what's happened in some synagogues and in Pittsburgh and Dallas, and uh, and so we know that this is this is real, and it's not just in the United States; it's also happening in Europe and around the globe. And so, uh, you stand out as a uh, bright, shining light uh, because some Jewish people who really do not know Christians, especially evangelical Christians, uh, seem to think that Christianity is at the core of the rationale for anti-Semitism in our modern day. And uh, 
we don't believe that a real Christian really can be anti-Semitic. It's, I mean, it's possible, but it's not probable <laughs> because uh, it's antithetical to what the Bible teaches. And But you've taken it to a new level, Pastor Ken. You've really stood your ground for the Jewish people and against anti-Semitism. I, for one, just want to begin by asking you, why? <laughs> well, how did you come to this position and why, what did God do in your life to cause you to act? And uh, maybe it'll give some others who are listening uh, a rationale f- for action also in uh, showing God's love and concern for Jewish people. So I, I give it to you, Ken. Tell us. Well, I think you have to go back quite a long time because <laughs> I was brought up in a very strong uh, evangelical Bible-believing congregation. And so... From my earliest years, we were taught that the Jews are God's chosen people, Mm. that his plans for them are ongoing, and that we were required as Christian believers to respect and honor them, and particularly in the formation of the modern state of Israel, Mm. the regathering of the Jewish people, uh, we were taught that this was the fulfillment of the writings of the Hebrew prophets. And so it was It was not only a critical event historically, but also was moving God's timetable along in terms of his ultimate plans of redemption yeah. for the world that he has made. And I can remember very, very vividly in, let me think, it would be the 1967 war and I would have been in community college at that point. And I have this vivid memory of a Life magazine coming into our home. My dad was a subscriber. And this was at the end of the Six-Day War, and Life magazine had a special issue on the, the 67 war. And on the front of Life magazine was a picture of Yossi ben Hanan in the Suez Canal, holding up and smiling with this incredibly vibrant smile, um, his rifle. And I remember this kind of surge of warmth and affection and thankfulness that Israel had been able to accomplish so much in such a short period of time. And for me at that stage in my life, you know, to have a hero like Moshe Dayan and Golda Meir and Yigal Yadin, the archaeologist, as well as the Jewish warrior, I mean, I'm sure this set me apart from most of my peers for who those names would mean nothing. So right. I think that commitment to Zionism was there in my youth even before I knew that there was a name or a word that would describe me. So, and it's grown since then. So really, you you are telling us that you grew up in a home where you read the Bible and took it literally and believed that God still had a future for Israel and the Jewish people. And it was actually unfolding before your very eyes. I always like, I always like to say that if there was ever a, a day I would have liked to have been alive, it would have been in May 1948 when when Israel actually became a nation. And I wish that I had uh, believed the prophecies on the fulfillment of uh, of the return to the to the land of Israel. Uh, I mean, it must have been spectacular. Um, now I don't think you quite made it back to 1948, did you? Well, I was born in 47, so I I would have been a year old. You would have been a brilliant one-year-old, Ken. Uh, (laughs) But 67 was pretty good, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, already by by 1967, I was already, I had already had my bar mitzvah, you know, Uh, and and so, you know, of course, by that time, uh, somebody like me who was part of the Jewish community in New York City was well aware Mm. of Zionism about what God was doing, but I've got to tell you, Ken, if you would have told, if I would have met you at that, you would have been a year or two older than me, maybe. If I would have met you and you would have told me 
that you were an ardent Zionist and you were a Gentile Christian mm. and a serious Christian, I would have said, what planet are you from? You know, mm. I, I, I never met anybody like that huh. as a, uh, growing up in New York. Mm. Never, never. That's interesting. Especially motivated and moved by the biblical story. Mm. And Well, for me, I think not only were, was the preaching that I listened to as a youngster um, moving me towards what I would now call today a Zionist position. But also I have a very vivid memory of maybe when I was perhaps between, probably between 10, 10 and 12. And my parents had gone out for the evening and I was watching television. And in those days, it was just a relatively small <laughs> box with a grainy It wasn't in color, huh? No, it was definitely not in color. <laughs> but was watching this program and it just so happened that it was on the subject of the Holocaust. Mm. And although my dad had been in the Army Air Force in World War II, he had never ever discussed within the family anything connected to his service in the Army Air Force, nor any of the issues which precipitated our mm. involvement in, in World War II. So when this program came on, which was specifically about the Holocaust, I had never even heard the word at that point. And so imagine this impressionable youngster, as I said, probably no more than 12 or 13, 10 to 13, somewhere in that. I'm terrible at remembering dates. And as I watched those images of the camps, as they were mm. found at the end of World War II. The, the word horrified is almost probably not as strong as sure. I'd like it to be. I was appalled. I, I could not even get my head around what I was seeing. Mm. And, and I was all alone in the house at that point, so there was no one to talk to, there was no one to share it with. But I started crying, and I could not stop crying. Mm. I was convulsed with grief. Mm. And the program ended, and shortly after that, my parents came home, and I was still crying. And my mother said, you know, what are you crying for? And I told her what I had just seen. And I don't think her response was probably as helpful as it could have been, because her reaction was, well, if it upset you, why did you watch it? <laughs> Great. <laughs> but I think in that moment in the in the study of our home and that visual and verbal exposure to the Holocaust, it changed me. Hmm. And I think the support for Israel in the sixty seven war and the Yom Kippur War and all of the major changes that have happened in my lifetime. I think the seedbed out of which that passion has grown and deepened over the decades began very young. Hmm. I'm wondering uh, one more, and then I'll let Bobby get a question in. But but what, just one more. Um, this is all very uh, interesting to me because it's it's almost like the other side of the coin for me. Hmm because I was on the Jewish side of the coin, and I was expected to be a Zionist, you know, but we didn't really study the Bible in my home. Mm -hmm. I mean, we knew Jewish tradition, and we observed the holidays, and I went to Hebrew school and studied the Bible, but I, I can't really tell you. I don't know if I even believed it. And uh, there you were, a Gentile, maybe believing more in the God of Israel than me, mm -hmm. and believing that God had given the land to the Jewish people, and that this was the fulfillment of prophecy and a sign of, of really uh, what we now know as the second coming of Jesus. But, mm -hmm. of course, I wasn't thinking in those terms. I didn't believe in his first coming. Mm -hmm. So, uh, But um, just wondering, uh, as you were growing up uh, in the church as a believer, even before you're uh, you went into the ministry, of course, mm -hmm. and you were in high school and you were meeting other kids and so on. Um, you seem to indicate that you were a lone voice. And uh, I'm just wondering, what was the mood of the 
church post uh, in that era, let's say between 67 and 73, between the two wars. I mean, how did most mm. Gentile Christians, mm -hmm. those who were really born again believers, mm -hmm. how did, what, what did they think about Israel and the Jewish people or did they think anything about the Jewish people? To be honest, I cannot remember any sustained conversation hmm. either with my family or fellow friends and acquaintances within our church circles on this specific subject. Sermons at church? The sermon certainly that dealt with the prophetic passages from the Hebrew Bible, of course, I remember the outline of them. Sure. But in terms of you know, study groups afterwards or uh, conversations around the dinner table, no. I still look back on those formative years and see my Zionism as something that grew quietly and almost privately. Interesting. Well, okay. Um, I didn't ever feel that I had to seek out support for my beliefs right. and my affectionate concerns. It was just something that became part of who I am. Interesting. And there were contacts with Jewish people. And I wouldn't say that, although I grew up, I should say that I grew up bas basically in a, a Gentile atmosphere. Sure. But there were significant contacts with Jewish individuals throughout those years that put, put flesh and blood on what was a heart attachment. Hmm. And so with the Jewish people that I did get to know, there was a there was a a yearning to like. Does that make sense? Sure. A yearning to like because they were always associated in my mind with the reality of these sure. are God's chosen people. I mean, what's not to like? Why would you not want to be part of that world. Yeah, what's weird is, you know, from a Jewish perspective, if a Christian came up to me and said, you know, we really love you because you're part of God's chosen people, I think I'd flip out, you know, and, and <laughs> you know, a little too much love. Yeah. <laughs> you know. And you would probably doubt it, I would right? Yeah. yeah, because, I mean, I grew up in a home where on Sundays we'd visit my grandmothers in Brooklyn and mm -hmm. look at pictures of dozens of people that died in the Holocaust, and we blamed oh. it on Christians. So I was pretty cynical, mm. probably, towards uh, Christians. But um, but anyway, I'm, I'm just so curious. Did you ever uh, meet any Jewish believers in Jesus, or were there any missions to the Jewish people that would come by the church, or did you know about any of that world? No, certainly not in America. But I moved to Scotland in 1972. Uh-huh and initially worked in a hospital in Glasgow. Okay. And I became associated with a Presbyterian church that was a very, very strongly committed to a biblical worldview. And through that connection with a strong Bible-based Presbyterian church, I did become aware of a group, which I think they've changed their name by now, but in the 1970s, it was known as Christian Witness to CWI. Israel. CWI. Yeah. Yeah. And the Presbyterian church that eventually my wife and I joined were very strong uh, supporters sure. of CWI. In fact, in 1983, I think it was, my wife gave me a surprise gift uh, of a trip to Israel. It was uh -huh, my first nice. trip to Israel. It was cheaper um, from Scotland, too. And it America. was, actually, yeah. yes. And I went <laughs> under the auspices of CWI. CWI. Yeah, Murdo so McLeod was the president. Murdo McLeod was president Yeah, I knew point. him well. Yeah. And, uh, and so it was through that Scottish atmosphere, hmm. particularly in the evangelical wing of the Presbyterian Church in Scotland, yeah. that, that I had actually got to visit Israel the first time. Did, did you know that the founder of Chosen People Ministries, Leopold Cohen, came to faith on the Lower East Side of Manhattan through a Polish 
Presbyterian missionary to the Jews who was under the auspices of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. And he had been trained at New College Edinburgh. Mm. And so when Leopold Cohn came to faith, he had received a scholarship from the United Free Church of Scotland. Mm. And he uh, got Leopold Cohn that same scholarship. And so after Leopold, our founder, became a believer, he went over to New College Edinburgh and Mm. studied theology in in Edinburgh. Mm. And I know it's true because I actually contacted uh, the the Free Church College and I asked them if uh, New New College Edinburgh is Mm. another one that's Free Church. And I asked if he had- Which, by the way, was the college I went to for seminary. The Free Church. Free Church College in Edinburgh, which is right next door. Right next door to New New College, College. yeah. Yeah. And, uh, And so- uh, I know a little bit about the history, and so what happened <laughs> happened was I asked if I if if he had graduated, mm. and they said yes, and uh, then uh, we have a picture of me standing on the steps walking up to the New College Edinburgh mm. Library, uh-huh. where I went in to visit the librarian, and I asked her for Leopold Cohn's grade uh, grades, mm. and she said. She checked, and she said, I'm sorry, that's private information. Uh-huh. <laughs> Even though he was long gone at that point. He was yeah. very long gone yeah. you know, at that point. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but yes, that's very interesting to hear. Uh, again, a, a lot of this, and I hope our listeners are paying attention uh, to this. I'm sure you are, that uh, h- how, you, how you raise your children uh, can have incredible impact mm. uh, in the future. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. and so, you know, it's through your church and through your, your folks, even if it may not be, have been as overt, you know, mm. but they created some kind of environment where uh, you were able to understand the scriptures in a certain way and see God's hand on the Jewish people and mm. love the Jewish people. And uh, that has been with you up until this present day yeah. and shaped a lot of your experiences. And particularly in Scotland, uh, once I was exposed to the work of CWI, but also in seminary, I found out that in the Free Church of Scotland, which was the largely evangelical breakaway from the established church, all of the leading lights of the Free Church of Scotland were ardent Zionists. And this is in 1843. McShane, Bonar. McShane, Bonar. And they were Zionists before it was Herzog. Pop- it was popular. Before Herzog popularized secular Zionism. <laughs> yeah. And so if you want to go right back to the roots of Presbyterianism, you know, all the way back to John Knox, Presbyterians historically were very much for and with the Jewish people and always believed that there was a glorious future, future for them and that God's plans were continuing to unfold. So tell me, uh, Ken, did you ever read my favorite little book called Lectures on the Jews by the Ministers of the Church of Scotland, published in 1843? I haven't read that, but I read the the journal, uh, the travelogue, the travelogue yeah. of those men when they went not only to... <laughs> what's now the land of Israel, but also Europe. That's right. And basically sought the welfare of the Jewish people all over. And it's It's a a very famous story. Oh, yeah. Um, I still have their book. The brother that followed uh, Murdo McLeod wrote his doctoral dissertation on the movement in Hungary, which was the first field occupied by the Presbyterians. Ah by someone by the name of Rabbi Duncan. I don't think he was actually Jewish. No, I know no, he, wasn't he wasn't Jewish. No. no, but Rabbi Duncan taught at the Free Church College. He did. And and he was steeped in Hebrew. Yeah. And and that's why they called him Rabbi Duncan, was because he had a, a Jewish soul. <laughs> a Yiddish neshama, huh? Mm. That's the Jewish soul. Anyway, that's a, it's a great heritage, great mm. history, and it's been been a big part of my life understanding and researching that. Oh, good. As well. Yeah, it's just it's just wonderful. Mm. 
Oh, Bobby, you better ask your question yeah. now because I'm, I'm, yeah, no, this is, uh, I'm, I'm, enjoying I'm this. too interested. Yeah. <laughs> I've uh, got six more, but go ahead. <laughs> so, yeah, I have a question about your first trip to Israel. Now, uh, obviously, like Mitch mentioned, uh, the love for the Jewish people was ingrained in you from childhood through your study of the word, through your upbringing in your home, mm. through the impact of even being exposed to the Holocaust studies as a child. Uh, but what impact did visiting the land of Israel have in your in this journey, uh, in your love for the Jewish people? Hmm. Oh, that was quite extraordinary because, as I mentioned a few moments ago, it was a surprise gift mm -hmm. from my wife. And so it's not anything that I had planned over a long period of time. It was the gift was given at Christmas and we went that spring. And in those days, that magnificent new airport that they have at Ben Gurion um, hadn't been built. And I have a vivid memory of the plane landing on the tarmac. And we had to walk down the steps onto the, onto the uh, pavement. Wow. And I, I, I hope senility doesn't take this memory from me because it's so vivid. Literally the second, literally the second, I'm not dramatizing it, my feet touched the ground there was this feeling of totally relaxed totally at rest and i felt that i had come home yeah i don't understand that but that was what was real and that feeling of complete openness to what there was to receive in that trip that i had was set right from the first moment hmm. we touched the ground. Not when the plane landed, but when I touched the ground. And so, as I said, I don't understand all of that, either theologically, emotionally, or in terms of my upbringing. I think it's something mystical. I think it's something that only God can put in us. Hmm and only God can sustain. So that was my first reaction. Yeah, wow, that's great. Wow. And it has been sustained ever since. Last year, and I think I mentioned this to you, I was invited by Yad Vashem to mm -hmm. a Christian leaders seminar uh, to where they paid for the everything connected to the seminar, but we had to pay our own way back and forth, which was fine. And I made the decision to go five days early so that I could acclimatize myself to Jerusalem and just wander and do things in Jerusalem that I had not had the opportunity to do. And we've been on trips there before when I was always with a group. Mm -hmm. And so every moment is planned. But now this was five days of just Ken freelancing it in Jerusalem. Yeah, it's a different experience. And I had a panic attack on the plane going over. And so imagine me sitting in these cramped little seats thinking, Ken, what are you doing? This is crazy. You don't know anyone in Jerusalem. What are you going to do? How are you going to find your way around? And I actually fantasized about getting to the hotel and holding myself up there and just waiting the five days until the seminar began when I would have the safety of a group around me. But here, decades later, from that first experience that I described, the plane landed, I got off, totally relaxed, hmm. went through all the elaborate COVID procedures, went out mm -hmm. to get the Nesher taxi, waited until the Nesher taxi was full, and it was an interesting eclectic group of people from Africa and Orthodox Christians from the Middle East, mm -hmm. and I was probably the only Western Christian, and we had an Arab driver and took us all around to where he was dropping people off and then i was the last one out but i thought to myself and this this feeling lasted all the way through hmm. from the time we arrived until the time i got on the plane to come back and i this is going to sound a little bit dramatic and i don't mean it to because it's really what i felt mm -hmm. and i was only able to put words to it after those almost two weeks in, in Jerusalem. And it was as if from the second we landed, there were no panic attacks. And it was as if 
the Lord took my hand and he and basically said, "I'm walking you through this." Wow. And looking back on it now, the people we met, the things we saw, it was as if everything was simply the unfolding of what I was supposed to do, think, feel, experience, and the people I had to meet. And it was amazing. And Israel's a very friendly country. I mean, uh, just go on a line anywhere in Israel and watch how many people want to get close to you and push you out of the way. And <laughs> I mean, it's just you know, it's yeah. just a wonderful, warm uh, country mm. <laughs> in that way. Mm. You know. Um, so, would you uh, people are listening to the podcast and watching it, and uh, you've been talking about uh, a couple of trips to Israel? Uh, would you? You recommend that every Christian go to Israel, I hope? I mean, oh, it's life-changing, isn't it? It is. It, yeah. it's, it's very transformative. Mm. And I think what's required is that you go there with an open mind and heart mm -hmm. and just let God write on it what he yeah. wants to write. You know, that old airport, um, some years ago, when they were opening Terminal 3, which is the new terminal the new one. Okay. yeah uh i had no idea that myself and my dear friend john holbrook who was our board chair at the time for chosen people mm -hmm. that we were there on the day it was opening ah terminal three wow. and on an ll flight mm -hmm. and and when we were landing all of a sudden i heard uh music and uh, it was just you know typical jewish music and mm. and then I, as i was walking out i saw balloons and people dancing on the tarmac mm. and i said what what's going on here I, mm. I i don't think it's for us you know but i mean what what is it for and and then I, we run into the mayor of jerusalem you know uh. and uh mayor of tel aviv and lo and behold it was the opening of the of the terminal uh, which is quite a magnificent terminal oh it's beautiful and um and so that was that was a fun moment mm -hmm. uh so um tell us just uh quickly i want to i want to get to the memorial and all that mm -hmm. in, a, in a moment but just give us a thumbnail history so that our listeners can understand a little bit more about your background. Mm. So when did you go into the ministry? What kind of churches did you uh, pastor? Were you always a pastor? Mm. And, um, you know, just give us the lay of the land. Yeah. Of Maybe some of your educational background Education as well. Education. Yeah. Well, my undergraduate work was in my home state area of northwestern New York State. And then um, in... After getting my bachelor's degree, I worked for in several different jobs. But then, because we had family in Scotland still, mm -hmm. um, I had been there in 1970 and 71 just to visit as a tourist, Scotland, England, Northern Ireland. And the second year that I went back, I was staying with my cousins. And I said, you know, I would really like to work in Scotland for a while. I want that experience. And they had both been nurses in a hospital in Glasgow uh -huh. and knew the director of nursing education for that hospital. And they got me an interview, and to my amazement, I was offered a position at the hospital to train. Mm. In those days, nursing was basically an apprenticeship. Uh -huh. You would uh, go six weeks to school and, let's say, study um pediatrics or obstetrics and gynecology or general sure. surgery. And then after the academic training, you would be sent on to the wards over a three-year period and through a gradual assumption of more and more responsibility, you would then, after three years, qualify to take the state boards, etc. cetera. Uh, so I went through all of that training and eventually became a staff nurse in a clinical hematology unit, uh -huh. and which was essentially for the treatment of blood-borne malignancies. And it was a very small experimental unit, so I got to know the patients well. And one of the formative things that happened was, especially since I was usually in charge on, on the evening shift, inevitably it wasn't just 
physical care. Uh, you got to talk to the patients, many of whom were quite young. Mm. And inevitably, the why questions would be asked. You know, why am I going through this? Right. You know, not always directly spiritual questions, but questions that touched on that area. Sure. And I realized over a period of time that in caring for people, it has to be holistic, mm -hmm. especially in the case of life-threatening illnesses. Mm. So eventually, I, I went to our pastor, who was a free church minister, Donald McLeod, and told him that this sense of call to the ministry was growing, but I didn't know if it was from God. Was it, you know, I'm, I'm always afraid of mixed motives, which we have, all of us have mixed motives sure. in everything we do. And his common sense advice was, well, apply to go through the process. And if eventually you are called to a congregation, then God is calling you <laughs> to be a Presbyterian minister. There you go. So that's what happened, and I served in two charges in Scotland. Where? One, one in the Highlands, a little town called oh, Brora. How nice. A little fishing village. And we were there for six years, and then wow. I was called to do church planting work in the lowlands of Scotland at a cathedral town called Dunblane. And then after three years there, through an amazing series of providential circumstances I never could have arranged, we were called back to the Philadelphia area and worked for 14 years out of 10th Presbyterian Church, which was a large... I think we know that one. Yes, you do. I'm sure you do. And I was the director of their ministry to people with AIDS. Oh, and wow. And at the time when it was, in the vast majority of cases, a terminal illness. Mm -hmm. But because I was also a pastor, as well as the, having had the nursing training, sure. I used to do preaching for Dr. Boyce, who was the pastor through most of my time there. Mm -hmm. So it was, the, in, in many ways, it was the best of both worlds because we had this outreach to a largely secular community in crisis, but also was able to preach at 10th and got to know the people well. And then after 14 years of that, was called to uh, Deerfield and was pastor at Deerfield for about 20 and a half years. And that was in New Jersey. In New Jersey, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, when you were 10th, of course, uh, you had a church that was very sympathetic to the Jewish people. And mm -hmm. um, I once was, Dr. Boyce used to run these uh, Bible conferences. Oh, yes, PCRT. Yep. Yeah. And uh, as strange as this might sound, one year, uh, he did one on the future of Israel, ah, and it was in Toronto and two other cities, I think. Hmm. And um, I was working for an organization, and uh, my supervisor, my boss, asked me to write the paper <laughs> for him to give. Oh, so I wrote the paper, and he gave it, and he gave it, and okay. but I, but then I gave it at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Toronto. Oh, good. Okay. And so I gave the paper. Now, I was in my early 30s, and mm. I gave this paper about the future of Israel. And there were not everybody was friendly uh, to the idea that God mm. had a future plan for Israel, you know? Mm. And, uh, and I did the Q&A, and I was getting pretty trounced. Uh, it was difficult. Huh. And uh, Dr. Boyce was trying to support me. And then there was another brother by the name of Roger Nicole, who was a professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. Mm. And uh, I finally got handed a question that was just pretty, I did not answer it, it was explosive. Mm. And Dr. Nicole just stepped out and said, now I know that my brother Mitch would, would, refer, would probably say this, and I would, I would agree with him. He, was, mm. <laughs> he just, he was really good, mm. and just took over and did, and did that. But, uh, but I got to know uh, Dr. Uh, Jim Boyce mm. during those few days better than, than I would have if I just went to the church probably. And, uh, and he had a real genuine heart for uh, Jewish people oh, and yes. for the future of Israel. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you had. Uh, probably some affirmation during those years and 
I don't know if you had that in Scotland, but no, no, we did. We had that affirmation in you Scotland, did. but I would say that probably, although as I outline my own history, that a commitment to Christian Zionism has been part of me for a long time. It's in these last years, running up to my retirement, that it's taken on, I think, an, a deeper and a stronger and a more um, insistent uh, place in my heart and in my mind and in, in my relationships. And um, it seems to me that as I listen to you and as we talk that um, you have a, a, a deep concern about the growth of anti-Semitism. Oh, absolutely. How, um, tell us about that. Well, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the seed of my horror uh, as to the reality of anti-Semitism was in me from a very young age. But again, in these last years, um, I've become more intensely aware of the damage that that did, not only to the Jewish people, but to the world as a whole. Mm. And part of this deepening of my both my understanding and my knowledge about the Holocaust has been accompanied by other things that, in terms of just the overall way we process things through our senses, uh, there have been pivotal moments where the echoes of the Holocaust in the places where it actually happened have impacted me as strongly as watching those grainy images of the Holocaust when I was probably no more than 12 or 13. Mm. And during my time in Scotland, traveling with friends, for instance, um, around Europe uh, during my holidays. This is when I still worked at the hospital in Glasgow. And we were in Germany, and one of our traveling companions noticed a sign that said Dachau that way. Oh. And he said, oh, I didn't know Dachau was this close. Could we go there? So my friend who was driving, we turned in and we went to Dachau. And again, there was this awareness that the moment, I mean, literally, the moment I stepped through the front gate of Dachau into the complex itself, it was as if this overwhelming sense of a dark evil that was almost suffocating hmm. hit me. And again, as when I was a boy, I started crying and I couldn't stop. And... Again, I don't understand all of that, but these things affect you. That's the sheer horror of it all. Yes. It's overwhelming. And, and it was as if the very atmosphere I was breathing changed from the time we were outside the gate to when we stepped in. And then several years ago, I went under the auspices of KUFI, Christians United for sure, Israel, yeah, yeah. on a trip to Poland uh, to some of the main Holocaust sites. And... I fully expected, and this is where I think the hope for Israel intersects with my own personal experience. I fully anticipated that in visiting particularly Treblinka hmm. and Auschwitz-Birkenau and Majdanek, I, I anticipated that that same wrenching emotional breakdown, even if temporary, was going to happen in all of these sites because there you're at the very epicenter sure. of it all. And yet, and again, I don't fully understand this, and yet I never, in all of our journey around Poland, broke down and cried. And I kept thinking, Ken, why? I mean, it, it was sobering, of course, and deeply instructive, but why was I not being excoriated in the same way that I had been at Dachau and as a boy watching right. the, the, um, the story of the Holocaust? And this is what was the relieving factor in every place that we went. 
there were also there was also a large group of Israeli teenagers who were sent by the state at the end of their secondary schooling and before they went into the military wrapped in flags yeah and everywhere we went there was these vibrant dynamic loud yeah. friendly <laughs> Israeli youngsters where some of their ancestors, probably many of their ancestors, perished. Sure. And yet they were wrapped in their Israeli flags. And I heard this on a couple of occasions at the end of whatever they were being told by their guide, they sang Hatikva. Yeah. And so it was this, this conjunction of a place of unspeakable horror and death, and yet life. Mm and a continuity and a future. And that's why I chose those words from Psalm 118 to go on our Holocaust memorial. Um, Let Israel now say, I shall not die, but live. And then above the English, we put it in Hebrew on the front and the back of the memorial, Lo amut ki echya. Not I shall die, but I shall live. And that says it all. I mean, does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah it's powerful. Yeah. And um, now it was that trip to Poland in particular that really precipitated the, uh, the, uh, the, the desire that you had to erect this memorial. Oh, absolutely. I came back and I told the architect in our congregation, I said, this is what I want to do. And then uh, concurrent with that, I was getting to be good friends with a retired rabbi in our area who actually was, he and his father were the only survivors from Auschwitz. His entire family, other than he and his dad, perished. Wow. And originally, I think he wanted to be a physician, but eventually became a rabbi, but was very, um, although I think he worked well with the community, in personal conversation with me, it was very clear. And he repeated this, frequently in our conversations that Christians caused the Holocaust. Yeah, that's the common and belief. He, he, he could not be budged from that. But for some reason, he, he was very fond of me. And I remember at one point, and he, he was de in declining health. And at one occasion, I thinking that we had really broken through some of that resistance to institutional Christianity. I was visiting him at a nursing home where he was a temporary resident mm -hmm. and he was sound asleep and I didn't want to wake him up. But then finally, after a while, when it, before I left, I thought I really should, you know, see if he's going to wake up and we can have some eye to eye contact. Mm -hmm. So I gently shook him and I said, Rabbi, and he, his eyes opened. He looked me right in the mm -hmm. eye and his first words were, Christians caused the Holocaust. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I held eye contact. I didn't respond. And by the end of our short conversation, he said to me, I'm glad I have a Christian friend. And one of my last um, times with him, while he was still able to articulate, he was in hospital. And I realized that time was running out. And I really needed to say then, what the friendship had meant to me. And so I told him, I said, Rabbi, I just want you to know that I love you and your friendship has meant a great deal to me and I want to thank you for that. And he smiled and he waved and he said, it will never die. And, wow. and that's how it ended. So tell us about the memorial. I mean, what, what did you build and... Uh, maybe you can describe it a little bit. And uh, was your church supportive of your doing something like this? Was the Jewish community supportive? Oh, the Jewish community was very supportive. <laughs> really? And I can't imagine what was going through their minds. Yeah. You know. And we had at the dedication, um, some of them came. And after the support that we got from the congregation, the second largest 
body of support, financial support for the for the granite monument, came from the Jewish community. And after Rabbi Cohn, my friend, died, uh, we in addition the the monument was already there and had been dedicated in a special ceremony. But then I wanted to have what's called a twinning ceremony, which is a concept that began in Israel, where young men and women preparing for their bar and bat mitzvah would be twinned with a young person, same age, maybe same kind of background, who perished in the Holocaust, but oh, did not wow. have a chance to have a bar or bat mitzvah. Yikes. And so um, I wanted to, as a memorial for my friend Rabbi Cohn, also have a kind of twinning ceremony, but but for adults, mm. where I would twin with the memory of my friend. And we had a kosher reception afterwards. And <laughs> the again, church. the Jewish community was very, very open. The church went kosher for the day. Well, those who came were, <laughs> whether they understood it or not. But there were two rabbis who took part in the actual twinning slash memorial uh, yeah, service well. for Rabbi Cohn. And and that again was pivotal because it's relational. It's not just I'm a theoretical Zionist. You know, this is my life. This is an extension of who I am. Now, as a Presbyterian pastor, you belong to a presbytery, which is a group of other Presbyterian like-minded churches. Mm -hmm. And uh, what they say? Well, they didn't oppose it. <laughs> uh, <you> know, <laughs> It, I guess, if, that's if, positive, yeah, I guess. Yeah. If, I can, if I can be honest, what I suspect is that even though our church left, our, our, our congregation left the liberal, left-wing, woke, institutionally anti-Semitic PCUSA and joined with the evangelical Presbyterian Church. Um, Other than means, that, how did you feel about the previous denomination? Yeah, <laughs> well, I've said it all. <laughs> but um, although I think, in theory, the EPC would would be sympathetic, many churches my, of the EPC yeah, are yeah. yeah would be sympathetic to my passion and my stance. But I also sometimes wonder if they think, well, that's Ken's thing. Yeah, you know, that's Ken's thing. We'll mm. let him do that. But if you were to ask me, do I feel that I have this groundswell? of support behind me, no. Yeah. And the thing that has, and I almost hesitate to say this, but I've started, so I'll finish. As this, several months, let me backtrack, several months before I retired, it was, a, it was an afternoon and I went out and I sat on the bench, which is kitty corner to our Holocaust memorial. Mm-hmm. And there was no Damascus Road experience. There was no drama connected to this. But as I thought about this unknown quantity of retirement, by the way, I now hate the word. I absolutely hate it. It's it. No, no one should have to retire. You work till you drop. However, yeah. anticipating... I'll take that advice. Thank yeah, you. <laughs> anticipating retirement, I said, okay, Lord, I don't know how much time I have left but I dedicate whatever time is left to me to seek the welfare of the house of Israel. I don't know what that means. I don't know what it's going to require of me, but that's what I did. And then interestingly, having made that undramatic but sincere commitment, it just so happened in my devotional reading, I've been going through the Tanakh, and it's almost as if passages specifically related to if you make a vow, you'd better follow through on it. And it was almost as if the Lord was using those passages from the Hebrew Bible to say, Ken, I heard what you said, and you've just got to be available. Do you know what our mission statement is at Chosen People? What? Bobby, do you know it? I do, yeah. Uh, Can I hear it? Sure. Yeah, we exist to pray for, evangelize, disciple, and serve the Jewish people and to help others do the same. Hmm. I think the seeking the welfare part hits the th that served part. Yes. Yeah. And so. I think that's who I am. 
the uh, when I was working with the uh, terminally ill, uh, particularly in the AIDS work in Philadelphia, one of the ladies who worked with us part time described my work. She said, "It's as if you are a bridge for these dying people. Hmm. That you will walk with them up to the point where they die, oh. but you are the bridge that." Kind of walks with them through that terminal process, and I'm beginning to think that that concept of a ministry as bridge, in some ways, I think accurately describes this passion and this commitment to Israel and the Jewish people. That it may not, although you know, I'm always ready to give a reason for the hope within me and my. Belief that Jesus is the Messiah and sure. Lord is 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 my is the basis of my life. Right. But in, especially in my friendships and relationships with the Jewish people, it's what you just said. I service. see myself as service, and to be in any way that God dictates. Um. Yeah, a servant. Yeah. of the Jewish, for the Jewish people, and to be an ambassador for the Messiah, even if that's not always appropriate to articulate. Not um, everybody needs to know. You don't have to wear an ambassador pin. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, and, oh, and by the way, and interestingly, yeah. all, all of the Jewish people with whom I have become intimate, both rabbis and, and uh, lay people, it's as if even with we out me saying anything, they know where I stand. They understand it. Well, they understand it. Ken, that's because you stand out. Just no, well, well in I don't see myself. In, I know. I, I know you don't. That's <laughs> the fun. That's the fun of it. Yeah. Uh, so let me ask you this: I've Got some young pastors who are watching the podcast, hmm. and um, they're listening and and thinking, and uh, said some challenging things. Um, do two things for me. Number one, give me a scripture passage or two that uh, really drives you mm. uh, to be an ambassador and to believe in, in God's plan for the Jewish people. That's one. Mm. And then secondly, give me uh, two or three tips for some young pastors mm. uh, who, uh, they're in a Jewish area, they know Jewish people, mm. um, they were paying attention in seminary, but if the seminary said the Jewish people sh should not have any kind of uh, special approach, they just weren't listening. So they yeah. <laughs> they they want to they, mm -hmm. they want to they want to do it, and but you know just a, a couple of passages and then two or three words of advice mm -hmm. to uh, young pastors on how to handle uh, this relationship between the church and the Jewish people? Mm. Well, there is a, a short segment of a psalm. I can't remember the precise number, but I rem but almost every day as I pray for Israel, as I pray for Jewish friends, as I pray especially for the danger that Israel is in right now, mm. um, it's this phrase from the psalms, Lord, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. And I just go over and over and over and over that. And it's the prayer taken both from the Hebrew scriptures, the Psalm, but also it's the echo of what's in my heart sure. and in my mind. And as far as any advice, if I would even dare to call it advice, to young pastors or seminary students who are going to have to come to a settled conclusion yes. on how they are going to deal with the Jewish people and with Israel. Absolutely. I would just say it begins, continues, and ends with love. You must love them, not only for the sake of the patriarchs, but because God does. Hmm. They are still his chosen people. His plans for them are still unfolding. And human history as we know it is going to wrap up in Jerusalem 
and within the the the, the borders of Israel. Yep. So, if that's God's ultimate plan for planet Earth, should we not be on the right side? Right. And one of the things that my rabbi Kohn, my friend, the the Auschwitz survivor who recently passed, again one of those you know short verbal phrases that you hear it and then it goes deep and and scores your soul. And I, I can see it happening. We were sitting at his kitchen table, we were talking, and I don't remember the context of the conversation, the overall conversation, but all of a sudden he said to me, you people, Christians, <laughs> he said, you people worship a Jew. So why would you hate his people? Oh boy, that's so powerful. And I said, Rabbi, that is the question. Yeah. And I, and I want to believe, and I do believe actually, that before he died, he, he knew that he was loved, truly loved by this individual Christian. And at his funeral, when I was asked to speak briefly. Oh, that was great. Um, before the funeral, his daughter said to me that he never, in privately, he, he, he never said this to me, I never heard it, but she said behind the scenes when I was not there, whenever she would mention my name, he would say, he is my brother. Wow. That's and, uh, and so I treasure that. that yeah. Um, should be treasured. I mean, that's... Um, when people ask me, how, what's the best way to share the gospel with the Jewish people? I say, well, you need to start by loving Jewish people. And you don't love Jewish people in general. You love a Jewish person. Yes, yes. And, and that was a great compliment that he paid you. Yeah. And I, it's there. I, I'll never forget that. Hmm. And also I would say to, to seminarians and young ministers, when we look at the global situation and this acceleration of the pace of human history. As Jesus warned us, I have no idea when he will come back in power and in glory. However, I do believe that what you mentioned and referenced earlier, the rise of, the virulent rise of anti-Semitism and anti-Israel sentiment. Yes. I think if people are professing to be believers in the Lord Jesus, the time is approaching, if not the time already arrived, when Christians are going to have to make a choice. Am I going to stand with the Jewish people and Israel as a minority of Christians did under Nazi rule? Or am I going to keep my mouth shut or drift on the rising tide of anti-Semitism. We are going to have to choose. And I think what choices we make vis-a-vis -vis the Jewish people and Israel will indicate where we really are with God. Thank you, Ken. Yeah. Can I pray for us? Please. Let me do that. Psalm 122, verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They will prosper who love thee. Mm -hmm. We so deeply appreciate your taking your time to be with us. Well, thank you very much. And so let me close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you for Pastor Lauder. Thank you for the dear brother he is. Thank you for the way you've worked in his life. And, and Lord, um, it's just so clear that you've touched Ken and that uh, he is this love for Jewish people and the, his Jewish friends and for the nation of Israel is not just something he believes, it's part of his very soul. And I thank you for that. And Lord, may he be an example for all those uh, listening and viewing this podcast and uh, all sorts of people, Lord. Uh, I pray, Father, that uh, they would uh, be drawn to Ken's passion and love for your chosen people. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to share these wonderful things again. And we pray that you'll be with each one of us and each 
person who's listened or viewed the podcast, Lord, I pray that your, your peace and your love would fall upon them. And we pray all of this in the wonderful name of Yeshua. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ken. God bless you. Well, thank you for having me. Okay. I hope it was appropriate. It's very appropriate. <laughs> thank you, Bobby. Yeah, thank you, Mitch. Okay. <laughs> All right. Shalom. The greatest weapon we have against hate is love. When we show the Messiah's love to the Jewish community and stand with them against anti-Semitism, they get a glimpse of Shalom, the true peace they can have in Yeshua. After all, it is in our Messiah that Jew and Gentile become one. Like Reverend Kenneth Larder, you can show your support for the Jewish community and seek to repair the pain of the past. We cannot change what happened, but we can shape the future. God can use you to reconcile the Jewish community with their Messiah. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or a rating on Spotify. Let us know how this podcast has moved you. We would also love if you can share it on social media with your friends and family. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Our Hope, featuring Dr. Mitch Glazer, Robert Walter, and Reverend Kenneth Larder. This episode was produced by Mitch Glazer and Robert Walter and edited by John Bautista. This episode was also created thanks to Grace Sweet and Rachel Larson. I'm Nicole Vaca. Until next time.